Good morning. If you got a Bible, you can turn to James chapter 5. That's where we're going to be. We're in week 9 of our Words of Wisdom series that we've been doing. We should finish this hopefully by the end of this month, June. We'll do some different stuff through July and August, and then September we'll kick off a new uh, sermon series for the fall. And uh, hopefully, uh, you know, quite a few small groups that are going. If you're interested in starting another one or uh, participating in one, please let us know. We'd love to connect you. And the more people we have uh, in small groups, the more relationships are formed, the more space we make for people. And uh, so a lot of good, good things uh, happening. Um, this is uh, one of those texts that you wish you could just cut out of the Bible and just uh, you know move beyond and not deal with. And I've tried that all week, and God wouldn't let it go. So we're going to tackle this text, and uh, we're going to read James 5, 1 through 6, but we're actually going to then turn to the book of Esther and let Esther uh, teach us about, uh, about the implications of this text. So here, here we go. Uh, now listen, you, you're going to see real quickly why I don't want to deal with this, this text. Uh, now listen, you rich people, weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Who would like to preach this morning? Glad to turn it over to you. Um, by the way, you know, you, you read that and you go, oh, we're not rich, we're not rich. And you know what? There's a truth to that, but the, the greater truth is, is that we are 270 to 1,000 times more wealthy than the rest of the world. That's just kind of a sobering number. I don't know about you, but you kind of look at that and go, oh, wow, didn't know that. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. Well, that sounds like a horror movie, doesn't it? You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. So just some set-up thoughts, and then we're going to jump into the book of Esther. Um, you know, the last days are the days in between the ascension of Jesus and his second coming. Uh, but the bigger question for us is, is how should I live in the last days concerning my wealth? Now, James is writing to a group of professing Christians who have laid up their wealth as a treasure. Um, I like the way that the NIV says this. It says that you've hoarded your wealth. Uh, it became rather crucial to them. Uh, the result was that their riches rotted, their garments were moth-eaten, and their gold had corroded. Now, he's telling us that they loved their riches, that they embraced it, they treasured it, they gave it their allegiance and their affection, and they drew it close to themselves. They have their closets filled up, they have their riches set aside for their security, and their gold is all piled up because they believe that in those things, that's where their hope comes from. Now, notice he says that its evidence was the corrosion and not the riches. God is not anti-riches. God is anti-hoarding for ourselves and setting it aside as if it is the God of the universe. The indictment is not the riches or the clothes or the gold. Because think about it. When do clothes get moth-eaten? When does gold 
get corroded? When do riches rot? It's when they're unused and they're hoarded. Now, I don't know what you have, but what you have and what I have was given to us to be used and not set back so that we can say, look what I have. Look at, here's my hope, here's my strength, here's this, here's that. And so we're not going to hoard it up, but we want to be wise with what we have. We want to plan, and that's the way we are as a church. Uh, from day one as a church, we have set about to use quite a bit of the what people give to help other people, and that's been prominent from day one, and it's prominent today, is that we want to be a people that reach out and help and love on those in need. And I think that's who God's called the church to be. Um, notice that James doesn't go at this by a particular amount of money. He doesn't say, well, if you have this much, this too much. What he says is that what you have, if you're hoarding it and with withholding it from helping others, it's using you because you're worshiping it. You've hoarded it up. And God gives us what he gives us to be used, not to be unused. And the evidence is that the corrosion of it, because we hide it away. It eats our flesh like a fire, he says. Now, we think that our possessions or our wealth will give us life, but you know as well as I do that that's an empty promise, because there's never enough. If it's about what we have, the truth is, is that we never ever have enough. So we become conspicuous consumers where we have to have more and more. But maybe it's not just the more, maybe it's a particular label. But see, all that is emptiness because it eats at us because it never gives us what it promises. It's never going to satisfy us. It's never going to make us feel like we have enough. The second thing that he addresses is how they accumulate their wealth. He says, listen, there, there are people went out and worked in your fields. They labored, and, and you didn't even pay them their wage. You didn't even pay them what you promised them. Because by withholding or not paying them what you promised, you are making yourself even more wealthy, but at the expense of others. Perhaps it's because you, you feel like maybe they, they didn't do it well enough, or perhaps you just don't want to pay them. And so James is really going after this group of believers about how they handle stuff. Now, I'm going to put a word before you that really is ultimately what this text is about, and it's the reason I want to go to Esther to try to explain this, and it's the word power. It's the word power. And power is a dangerous word. Now, power can be used for a lot of good things as well, but power is a dangerous word. You see, it's part of our nature as image bearers of God that each of us is given a certain amount of power. Now, the way we relate to power, both in ourselves and in those around us, has profound effects on our witness and on our souls. At a minimum, each of us has power over our thoughts and actions. We can't determine what someone else is going to do, but we can determine how we're going to respond to what they do. Now, there are a myriad of hierarchies of power that shape the way the world is governed. There are power dynamics in every family, within the marketplace, 
within the global politic world, at its best, power can be used to work for justice, to govern the world peacefully, and to protect the innocent. At its worst, it's one of the most destructive things in the world. And the book of Esther is a fascinating study of this idea of power, both its redemptive use and its corrupting use. Now, the central figure who embodies power in the book of Esther is not the king, but it's his visor, Haman the Agagite. Now, when we meet Haman in Esther chapter 3, he's just been enthroned as the visor, and the whole kingdom has been ordered to bow to him, but there's one person that refuses. Let's pick up in Esther 3, 2 through 4. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him, but Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Then the royal officials at the king's gate asked Mordecai, Why do you disobey the king's command? Day after day they spoke to him, but he refused to comply. Therefore they told Haman about it to see whether Mordecai's behavior would be tolerated for he had told them he was a Jew. Now, that's just thrown in there. We'll, we'll get to that in a minute. Now, it needs to be stated, and, and we're going to do a little history work, so don't go to sleep on me. It needs to be stated that Mordecai is no saint, at least not up until this point in his life. He's lived a compromised life in Persia. He has a Persian name, even though he's a Jew. He's raising his cousin as his daughter with no regard to Jewish law, and that's Esther 2, 9 and 10. But when Haman is named visor, something in him awakens and he refuses to bow down. Now let me zoom out a little bit and kind of set up this ancient conflict that's been going on. Um, maybe it'll help make sense to some of this where we want to go. The story of Esther is marching towards an attempted genocide of the Jewish people, driven by the Agagite Haman. Now Agag was the king of the Amalekites. That didn't mean anything to some of you. One of Israel's most long-standing and antagonistic foes, knowing that Haman is an Agatite, ties him to a war against the Jews that goes all the way back to the Exodus and Moses leading the people out of Egypt going through the desert. Now Moses, in the book of Deuteronomy, warns Israel not to forget the horrors that the Amalekites brought on them. Deuteronomy 25 says it this way. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary, and he cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you. He did not fear God. Therefore, when the Lord your God has given you the rest from all your enemies around you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, you shall blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. And right, listen. In Jewish tradition, the book of Esther gets read every year at a festival called Purim. During that celebration, this passage gets read, this passage out of Deuteronomy gets read before they read Esther, and it explains the animosity of Haman towards Mordecai in particular in Jews in general. Now, Israel first faced the Amalekites shortly after receiving the law at Mount Sinai. The Amalekites attacked Israel from the rear. They didn't face them up what we would call fight like a man or a woman. They killed the stragglers. They killed the weak. 
They killed the sick. They killed the women and the children. And see, that's how you intimidate people to do what you want. You, you're basically a terrorist organization, and you're picking off the least. You're picking off the people that can't defend themselves. That's how you create fear in a group of people because you never know where they're going to come from. You never know when they're going to attack. And so it unsettles the people. It's the reason that the Israelites continued to find themselves enslaved because they didn't know how to defend themselves. And because they would attack at odd times and they would they would pull out the weakest. I mean, you're going to sit around and go, am I, am I next? Am I next? And then you live in fear. And before you know it, you're imprisoned or you're enslaved by the reigning power. Now, one doesn't have to think hard to find parallels today in those who target innocence in order to demoralize their enemies. It's a win-at-all-cost approach to power. There's a guy named Yorm Harzoni who is a historian. He wrote these words. We have no idea what gods ruled over the Amalekites. None are named, and for all we know, there may have been none at all. What we do know is whatever gods may have belonged to Amalek as a people, they did not fear any moral boundaries established by them. Unlike even the most depraved of the idolaters of Canaan, they respected no limits on their desire, you ready, to control all as they found fit. But isn't that what power does? Power entitles people to take advantage of other people. Isn't that the history of the world? And we are susceptible to the same thought. Now, Mordecai's refusal to bow down isn't just a rejection of Haman, and it's not just a symbol for the generations-long conflict between Israel and Amalek. It's a rejection of this kind of win-at-all-cost approach to power. It's a rejection of the idol of power. It's a moment of spiritual awakening in Mordecai, a moment where he could compromise no further. Suddenly, he found himself living in a world that was bigger than the court, bigger than Susa, where the capital was, bigger than Persia itself. He was suddenly caught up in the story of God and Israel, and in that world, he cannot bow down. He can't sit by while people use power to hurt other people. That's what James is writing about. That's what James is confronting, is those who have power, and they aren't using it for the sake of others. They're using it for their own good to take possession of people and enslave them. Now, what Mordecai does is courageous but it's also an extreme act of vulnerability because whenever you confront the reigning power to challenge it as being not of God, not the way of Christ, you put yourself in a vulnerable state. And it's utterly consistent with the biblical witness of both power and weakness. You think about Abraham. Abraham lived in Ur. He was a pagan. God told him to leave his aristocratic life and change it for a nomadic life, to go wherever God told him to go, and he did it. Moses, adopted by the daughter of the Pharaoh, has a position of power and influence in Egypt, but he sees a slave being beaten 
And he gives all that away to defend the life of another. And in the middle of that ends up taking another person's life. Eventually, Moses returns and makes himself even more vulnerable, telling the most powerful man in the world that the God of Israel wants him to let his people go. David faces Goliath not in strength but in weakness. And then, of course, the greatest act of vulnerability is the incarnation of Jesus. The ultimate moment when someone lays down their power, Philippians 2, he did not consider equality with God worth being held on to, but humbled himself. And he did it, why? For the sake of others. We're going somewhere. Hang on. You see, power doesn't have to be murderous to be abusive. It's a dangerous, dangerous thing the moment that power becomes self-serving. You see, because if I believe that whatever power I have is meant to serve my comfort, my prosperity, and my well-being without regard to the world around me, then the spirit of Amalek is beginning to well up within me. Let me say that again. If I believe that whatever power I have is meant to serve my comfort, my prosperity, and my well-being without regard to the world around me, then the spirit of Amalek is beginning to well up within me. People become means towards ends rather than ends in themselves. And we are tempted to exploit And in doing so, we don't bring life to the community around us. We bring death. We bring control, manipulation. You see, living this way accumulates, quote-unquote, collateral damage, which in war means the death of the innocents, of those who can't defend themselves. In business, it means burned-out employees and coworkers and embittered ex-clients and probably some broken laws. In our homes, it comes across as lonely spouses and children and families starved for love and attention and an ecosystem that learns to tiptoe around someone's wrath because you're afraid of what they may do to you. The Scriptures, on the other hand, invite us to a self-emptying approach to power. Now, this isn't the, the you know, real cheerful word of the day but it's a God-given word. You see, we're to walk in the footsteps of Jesus. And it's meant to put to use the power that God is giving for the sake of others, for the weak and the vulnerable, for the good of our cities and our homes, for the lost and for the wounded. You see, because Jesus said we ought to be light, and light goes to the dark places of the world and illuminates them and brings hope and brings peace and brings care and brings comfort. Haman's response to Mordecai ends up being the source of his own demise. He hates Mordecai so much. His lust for power is so offended by Mordecai's resistance that he sets in motion a series of events that almost lead to the complete destruction and genocide of the Jewish race. Almost. In the end, though, he's killed on the gallows that were his own making. And the Jews are saved. 
Here, too, is an important lesson on the dynamics of power. When it becomes the thing you worship and the thing that you long for most, it will end up destroying you. And we are all susceptible to the addiction of power. You may never struggle with a drug in your life, but the thirst for more and more power to take care of more and more of what we alone want is a crazy addiction that leads people to do things that are unspeakable. You say, well, it'll never happen. Oh, let's just go start walking around families of people we know that the quest to be in charge, the quest to have someone submit, the quest to have someone obey the way that you think it ought to be obeyed, that kind of power will not only destroy the person that's thirsting and hungering for it, it will destroy everybody collaterally around them. Because those who are the weakest, those who can't defend themselves, are the ones that end up getting hurt the most. And you watch kids that have been wrecked by parents that pursued power rather than love and nurture. You see it every day. You just Nobody wants to speak about it. Nobody wants to deal with it. Nobody wants to go after it until Jesus. As compromised as Mordecai was, he came to a place where he could compromise no more. He awakens to his identity as a Jew, and he embraces it publicly as part of a protest against the idolization of power. He says, here, I can go no further. That's what James is writing about in James 5. To those who are using their power for their own good and not the good of others. So James speaks a harsh word in James 5, 1 through 6. It's hard to wrap our minds around it, but we can kind of identify this thing with Esther. You see, our call is to know who we are. We're followers of Jesus. And when the world around us enshrines power, whether it be politics, business, or the celebrity world, we're to join Mordecai and refuse to bow down. To refuse to be tempted to use power to overwhelm those around us. We are called to not only resist, but we're called to use the power that God has given us for the sake of others. Power itself is a good thing. It's a gift from God meant to help bring order and justice to the world, but only when we order it rightly. Only when we refuse to worship power can we see and enjoy its benefits in our lives. So how does that practically look? Think about human trafficking. That people would see other people as commodities as goods and services to be employed for their own pleasure or their own profit. You think, how could that happen? Well, where did we first come across the thought of slavery? Anybody want to take a wild guess? The Bible. And it's happened in the name of Jesus. It's a horrible reading of a text and it's a horrible worldview where we make it okay to subjugate people for pleasure and profit. And it happens every day. Matter of fact, Esther, Esther wins the favor of the king 
Why? Because she's good looking. According to Esther 2, she smells good. And she delighted the heart of the king, which I don't mean to be brutal, but it means she was good in bed. Now, we kind of cleaned the story up. We made a, you know, an animated movie about it. But it was about profit and power. A friend of mine who's a pastor in Atlanta was uh, with me at Pepperdine uh, back at the 1st of May, and he addressed a, probably a crowd of about 3,000 people. You know, 99.9% of them were, were believers in Jesus. That same day that he spoke, they had just opened the Hanging Museum in Montgomery, Alabama, my home state, to commemorate the murder of a race of people solely based off their skin color because they were seen as for pleasure or profit. Don preaches in Atlanta. And he began to ask this question that you literally could hear people breathing. It was so quiet in there. He said, what's the value of a neck? What's the value that you place on the person that you meet but don't know? Or even the person that you meet and you do know, what's the value of a neck? What's the value of a, a black neck? What's the value of a white neck? What's the value of a yellow neck, a brown neck, a red Indian neck? What's the value of the people that you meet? And why do we look at people to see if we are going to give them more or less value in our life if it's not for the purpose of seeing who has more power? them or us? I don't know about you, but that's a haunting series of questions. Having grown up in the South, having witnessed both in the South, in the North, in the East, and the West, overt racism. What's the value? Well, it's depending upon how we view power. Do we have power to give it away for the sake and the good of others? Or do we have power so that we can subjugate a group of people and get profit and pleasure out of it? James is writing that very thing in James 5. He is confronting a group of believers for the view that they have of people. Now, I asked earlier, where, where did we get our first glimpse of that? It's Scripture, and it doesn't mean we throw Scripture out. But there has to be an awakening. There has to be an awakening. Jesus didn't come and say, I'm, I'm dying for Jewish necks only. I'm dying for Gentile necks. I'm not just dying for a race of people, I'm dying for all people. I'm dying for a world that is devoid of hope if I don't give my power away for the sake of others. Have there ever been a mandate 
in a time that the church needs to stop being quiet. We've gone on too long. The church has been silent because it's been about profit and pleasure. And those days have to end. Well, who, who can end it? People who are believers in Jesus who recognize that power, absolute power, corrupts absolutely. And people who are bound and determined to live the way of Jesus in a world that needs the way of Jesus. And so, here's my, my question is that when you see people, people that you know or you don't know, are we tempted to sum them up? Are we tempted to rate them? Are we tempted to categorize them? Or do we see creations of God that may be able to challenge me, grow me, love me, Mature me? Join me? Or do I see people who only are about competing with me? So James 5 is a hard text. I hope you'll go back and read it. I hope you'll walk through the book of Esther. It's not a very long book. But somewhere along the way, light has to engage the darkness and not be overcome by it. But let the love of God in Christ Jesus resonate in our hearts give away the power or use the power that God gives us for the sake of others. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that um, you have your way with us today, God, as we think through, Lord, the implications of the way we see power. And Lord, we're all susceptible to it at times. And, Lord, we may not be human traffickers. We may not be, but, Lord, what we may be, people that tend to devalue those we feel are in our way or that aren't as good as we think we are. Or we may overvalue someone because the thought is that they may be able to do something for us if we can pay them enough attention. And, Lord, your word says that we are all, your children. And Lord, I pray for the ability for us to be honest with ourselves. And Lord, as we go take communion this morning, as we look at the body broken and the blood that was poured out, Lord, we're reminded that we are one in you. And Lord, that's not just a mantra. It's not just something to throw out each day, every now and then, or maybe once a year, Lord. It's a call to stand against the abuse that makes people about profit or pleasure. And so, Lord, I pray that we keep reaching out into the community to love people well. Lord, we don't hoard not only the wealth, but we don't hoard the love that you have poured into us. Lord, you, you freely gave, and we need to freely give. And so, Father, I pray for you to speak your word into us, Lord, of how, how you want us to see others, and to live, and to love, God, in the name of Jesus. Amen. I'm going to dismiss you to communion. There'll be a video to play if you want to get the, the elements and you want to gather with some people and pray, please do that. And we'll, we'll gather back at the end of that video and we'll, we'll close with worship.
But let me challenge you this week. Let me challenge you this week. Don't let the pursuit of power minimize the creation of God. Let's take the love that he poured out and let's give it away. Let's take communion this morning.